you're listening to Killer. This is case number 17, The Golden State Killer, Part 11. The original Night Stalker, Part 2. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. August 19th, 1980, Dana Point, 3381 Cockleshell Drive, Nigel Shores. It had been several months since the last attack in Southern California. The East Area Rapist had been dormant in Northern California, and it seemed the two attacks down south began to slow, that is, until August. Patrice, Patty Harrington, and her husband of three months, Keith, were just starting their lives together. Patty was a registered nurse in Irvine, and Keith, a medical student, was entering his third year and about to start his internship at UC Irvine. Life was good for the couple, that is, until the early morning hours of August 19, 1980. The couple were home together and had been intimate with each other. Someone was lurking around the home, waiting for their time. There was no sign of forced entry into the home, however, when Keith's father arrived to their home on August 21st to meet them for dinner. He entered their home and noticed completely full grocery bags from Alpha Beta Market sitting on the counter. They had been sitting there undisturbed for two days. He began to fear something was wrong, and he went into their bedroom, where he found the couple. They lay in their bed, face down, a blanket covering their bodies. They both had been bludgeoned to death, however, the attacker this time used the blanket over their bodies to minimize the blood spatter. There wasn't anything found at the scene of the crime this time. The ligatures had been used to bind the victims, and they had been removed. Their wrists and ankles had bruising around them. There were three pieces of twine on the bed, which may have been used to bind them, but they were removed following their murder, if that was the case. A glove was discovered several blocks away from the crime scene. It was a motocross glove, and it was soaked with blood. The young couple had ties to the medical community through their chosen profession. Through three attacks, there were now four medical professionals, an attorney, and his wife. Was there a connection to the medical field? If so, nothing had been uncovered that indicated so. The home was located in a gated community, which there were only three ways in, a security guard, a gate with a code, or by climbing a hill and jumping a wall. At the murder scene, it was discovered that Keith had only been hit once in the head, but Patty had been hit repeatedly. She had also been raped. No murder weapon was found. The soon-to-be-named original Night Stalker had begun a new form of an M.O. and was working on perfecting it. He had left behind bits of his bindings while obviously trying to hide them by taking them with him. He may have been following the news, which was reporting that Sacramento authorities were considering it could be related to the Ear series. The murder weapon was possibly a brass sprinkler head from the yard. Keith's father owned the home and was working on putting in a new sprinkler system during the time of the attacks. There was a small bit of brass found in Patty's head, which might mean it was, in fact, a sprinkler head. So the, you know, after this attack happens, um, you know, Sacramento authorities were starting to suspect that the East Area Rapist had moved south and was responsible for the murders in Goleta and the following murders after that. 
they were tying it together by MO. They had nothing else to go on. That's all they had is the MO. And so, you know, they're they're already suspecting that this is going on. But what's interesting here is it seems like as he's progressed to murder and now decided that he's murdering, he's also started covering the heads of the, you know, the victims before he bludgeons them with a sheet or blankets to contain the blood because the first time apparently it was pretty messy. He bludgeoned a couple and the blood splatter was all over the wall, all over the headboard area. So this time, you know, whenever the people are found, it seems like they've been covered and then bludgeoned. So he's been working on crafting his MO, if you will. And he also, he started taking the bindings, which was strange. You know, he hadn't done that before. I think maybe in one of the East Area Rapist attacks he did, if I recall, he took the bindings. But prior to that, I think he took the bindings and rebound them with something else, but took the original bindings and left. And then, you know, in this series, he starts taking the bindings with him, but he's obviously leaving like little bits and pieces behind where investigators are finding them, which I thought was interesting. What'd you make of, you know, how he's now kind of evolving his MO? It, it's interesting that he's taken the bindings with him because I think, like you said, in the in the one case, he did take them with him, but I thought there were so many in the ear series I could be thinking of the wrong attack, but I thought he had taken the bindings with him, but he threw them in the tree on his way out before he jumped the fence or wherever he was leaving to. It's interesting that he's taking the bindings with him because it didn't seem to be something he was concerned with before, but, you know, maybe he's trying to throw them off to the fact that it's related in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and the one thing, and I think we'll get into this deeper later on in this in this narrative, but he's not really ransacking anymore. And so maybe this is his way of taking those, the memorabilia, if you will, from the murders. Instead of ransacking the home and taking things, he takes what he brought with him. And that way, they have a tougher time if, you know, if say he was to be caught, you know, tying him to these murders because, you know, it's just twine or whatever it is, or nylon, you know, it's not Patty's earrings. <laughs> you know what I mean? So be a little bit more difficult. I don't know. I, I Just something I'm throwing out there, literally nothing to substantiate it other than a, an opinion or a theory. The um, one other thing I wanted to mention, so this comes years later, but Bruce Harrington, Patty's brother, he pushes forward later on, and I I didn't grab the years here, but it's late, much later, but he basically petitions to have Prop 69 uh, put into effect, which is a California law mandating that prisoners donate their DNA to a statewide database and that it can be taken by force. Because prior to this point, the only way to take it was if the prisoner complied with you. And if they didn't, they wouldn't take it from you. So if they ask you, can we have a DNA sample? And you say, no, they just left you alone. But now they're able to take it by force. And the reason that they wanted to do this was because, you know, after this string of rapes and murders, no one could figure out who this guy was. And and Bruce was saying, well, this is ridiculous. If we get DNA, you should have a database and you should be able to match any person committing a crime to the, against this database to see if we can figure out if they're somebody who's already been in trouble before. You know, only if you got in trouble were they doing this. It's not like they were making everybody give their DNA, which I thought was interesting. February 6, 1981, 35 Columbus, Irvine. Manuela Wittun, 28, was born in Germany. However, she lived in the United States for quite some time. She had married her husband, David Wittun. David had been ill and was in the hospital overnight with a viral infection. Manuela had visited him earlier in the evening of February 6th. 
It would be the last time that she would see him. Manuela wasn't thrilled about being home alone, however, she turned down an offer from her father to bring over his German shepherd to stay the night with her. Strangely enough, she felt safer sleeping in a sleeping bag. The patio door was pried open with a screwdriver. Not much is known from this point forward, however. She was discovered on February 7th, having been raped and murdered in her sleeping bag on her own bed. Investigators did find a flathead screwdriver left at the scene. The intruder had taken a crystal curio and a lamp. The recording tape to the answering machine was stolen as well. Nothing significant was stolen, nor any of the items recovered. The investigators also felt the crime was committed by someone close to her, and the burglary staged. Nothing else developed from the case for several years. July 27, 1981, 449 Toltec Way, Galetta, Santa Barbara. It was a quiet evening on Toltec Way when an intruder would unlock a door to the home by removing a nearby screen from a window. The intruder would then find himself confronting 35-year-old Sherry Domingo and her 28-year-old boyfriend Gregory Sanchez. Not much is known about the events as they unfolded since the couple were found slain the next morning by a realtor who was preparing to show the home. The house that Greg and Sherry were murdered in was on the market to be sold. Sherry had recently lost her job and was staying in the home while on hard times. It was a relative's home who had recently passed away, so she was given the rights to stay there for a while as it was awaiting a buyer. Sherry's daughter, Debbie, was a firecracker. Debbie was having a falling out with her mother. The young girl trying to find her own in the world had a screaming match with her mother and left to stay with friends for several days before finally calling her mom that day to see if she could come home and get her bathing suit. Her mother told her no, and they quarreled a bit more before ending the conversation on uncertain terms. Debbie would later receive a call from one of Sherry's friends instructing the young girl to report to the home immediately. Being the defiant one that she is, she figured her friend was just trying to broker a peace agreement between the pair. When Debbie arrived to the home, she found caution tape everywhere and was told she was not allowed in the home. Inside the home, her mother lay on the bed, evidence of being bound and even hogtied. She was also bludgeoned to death. Her boyfriend, Greg, was found in a closet, slumped over. He had been shot in the cheek, which was later determined to be non-fatal. Greg was then beaten repeatedly over the head 24 times. He was haphazardly covered with clothing, which may have been the attempt of the assailant to reduce the amount of blood splatter. This double murder had similarities between the Manning-Offerman murders and the murders in Ventura, Irvine, and Dana Point. Santa Barbara investigators began coining him the Night Stalker. So this is where I wanted to kind of touch on the Night Stalker versus the original Night Stalker. So originally, investigators started calling him the Night Stalker, but during the same time frame, there was another... Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, and he really took the term and kind of, they kind of ran with it with him, you know, so he became Night Stalker. So then the investigators started coining this Night Stalker, the original Night Stalker, and that term stuck. So then you get this strange abbreviation of ON's original Night Stalker. And so that's kind of where that comes from. And I think internally, that the investigators were calling this one the Night Stalker for a while. And then they realized that these, you know, obviously like these murders were not related to the other Night Stalker series. And so that's when the investigators call him, well, no, this is the original Night Stalker. He was the first one, you know. And then Richard Ramirez came in like sometime in the middle of this and after. It might have been 1984. And sorry, I'm going off the top of my head here. It might have been about 1984 when Ramirez kind of comes into the news and takes that moniker. So that was kind of interesting. Now, the one thing I do want to cover that we haven't really talked about a ton, and I think it's 
interesting to talk about here is the order of operations of these attacks because you know similar to the ear series you have the intruder coming into the home confronting a couple binding them and then raping the woman but they end in murder in this case and the ransacking isn't really seeming to happen in these series also the interesting thing here is in a couple of the attacks the male confronts the intruder and is subsequently shot or murdered so it's kind of interesting to speculate on when the woman is actually raped is the man murdered first or did he do his usual thing where he binds the male takes the woman to another room because that did happen we have evidence of a bed being messed up in another one of these murders in a spare room somewhere where it was like he took the woman to the other room and raped her and then brought her back and murdered her so is he murdering them together or is he subduing the male raping the woman, bringing her back, and killing her. What do you think? Without visible signs of a confrontation, or if there's not, you know, any of those, from from some of his previous MOs, he would antagonize to the male victim, right? Try to get them to do something, you know, go for it, do whatever. You know, I don't know. With I think it's weird with, in this specific attack, where the guy slumped over in the closet, did he get up and try to fight back, and then he got whacked over the head? And ended up landing in the closet, yeah. or did he just shove him he into did, the closet? He did. Well, I think the way that this one went down is he confronted him. He got shot in the cheek, but that didn't kill him. I think he went down from the shot and landed in the closet, just the way that it was situated. And then there were clothes kind of piled on him, and it was speculated the clothes were piled on him as a way to reduce the amount of blood, you know, just like he does with the sheet and the cover over the victim. And so then he gets bludgeoned and beat 24 times over the head violently. And then he's just laying there dead. So in this case, I think that, and maybe as a whole, I think that he, once he was confronted in one of the earlier attacks and had to shoot the man, I think that in going forward, I think he takes the guy out first Unless the guy gets up in the ritual of the the tying process, if you know what I mean. Right. I don't think he thinks it's safe anymore for him to leave the man in a room by himself. Because typically he takes the woman to another room. I still think he's doing that, where he takes the woman into another room and rapes her. But I think that in this case, he's trying to bind them and get them both you know, subdued. And then what ends up happening is the man gets loose or gets up to confront him, and then they end up having an altercation before he can actually bind the man and ends up just killing the guy, then continues on with his thing and then leaves. But the interesting thing, though, is if he's using a gun, that's going to be loud. Yeah, for sure. So so that's the other part where I'm kind of not sure on the way that the order of operations, because if you're shooting somebody and you're making a bunch of noise, you're not going to stick around and rape somebody. You know, you're most likely going to get the F out of there. You might kill the woman after that if you haven't already, and then just see ya. Exactly. And, you know, I don't know. I You try to put yourself in the mindset of this guy to, to think about how he would have done that. And it's hard to do because you're obviously not there. But I'm thinking if you want to keep the female victim in somewhat of a state where you have, you know, total control over her, you're not going to want her to hear you bludgeoning her male partner to death. Maybe not. Maybe he doesn't care. But if he's binding them up and then taking her to another room, you know, he could go back and he could take the take the male victim out and beat him up, you know, beat him over the head 24 times. But like you said, with the gunshot, that automatically would put 
the female victim into a, a frenzy, I would think. Like, oh shit, I'm next, right? Yeah. And, you know, you're making a great point with that. I don't know. I'm probably talking myself into a different <laughs> theory than I had started with. But I, I think he had to have raped before the shootings take place in the cases where that happens, because there's a case where nothing happened to the woman besides her being murdered, obviously. But I mean, right. as far as rape goes, because he got confronted by the male and had to shoot him a few times, you know, he didn't then, you know, stick around long. He was out. And one of the neighbors even heard the guns, saw the guy take off, and that was it. So, yeah, I I, I tend to think that, like in this case, well, I don't know. I tend to think that in general, he had to rape the woman, bring her back, and then murder them both at the same time. That's te- That's how I always just kind of thought of this thing, just knowing the case before and not really putting a whole lot of thought into the order of operations. But I think the order of operations is extremely important. However, I think it's very hard to tell, you know, without actually being an investigator and having access to the the investigation and the reports as to how the exact operation occurred. But it would seem like because nobody knew at the time if Sherry had been raped, it came out later, a while later, that they they've pretty much figured that she was raped. And I don't know if that means that they had DNA or what that meant, or how they determined it, but they did determine later that she had been raped. And so if she was raped and he was murdered, but he was shot in the face once, you know, was the killer really brazen enough to shoot him once and hang out and hope nobody came to check it out? <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is possible. Yeah, it is. I, I don't. I wouldn't think so, though. I mean, it's like we've said before, a gunshot is just so loud. I mean, there's no way to contain the sound of that. You know, obviously, unless you're using something that's silencing it, but... But I think they would know that. Yeah, there would be obvious evidence there. I mean, you see all these movies or whatever where these guys hold up a pillow and stick their gun in it to use it as a silencer or whatever. (laughs) I can't say that that truly works, something I've never tried to do, obviously, (laughs) but, you know, I, 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 I don't know. The thing that is baffling to me now, this is too, where it appears that he's tried to cover their head to reduce the blood splatter. Why is he even doing that, too? I mean, I think that might be more for when he escapes. Like, I'm guessing the first time he did it, he was a mess. Oh, I see. And yeah. he, yeah, and he had like blood all over him and was probably like, shit, if someone sees me, I'm going to be in big trouble. <laughs> you know, so he's like, I need to make sure I have a lot less blood on me. That or he's making it a visible trail out easier for a scent dog to follow a blood trail or, you know, physically see, you know, I got blood all over my shoes and they can follow my footprints up on out of here. What direction I headed. Yeah, well, remind me after this, because at the very end, I want to do kind of a summary of our thoughts as we wrap this up. And don't let me forget to come back to this, because I think there might be another piece of the equation that we need to consider that I don't want to say just yet. On May 4th, 1986, 13 Encina, Irvine, California, the strange series of murders had suddenly come to a stop in Southern California. No one knew what had happened. Some had theorized that the murderer had died or had been caught in some criminal activity, and that's why they stopped the string of murders that had been ongoing in the area. On October 12, 1982, victim number 24 of the East Area Rapist series received a phone call. Hi, it's me again. Remember me? I'm going to come over and fuck you again. You're going to suck my cock again. No one ever knew who made the call. The victim was working at a Denny's near Sacramento at the time. On May 4th, 1986, he would return. 
Diane and Alan Stein were vacationing in Mexico while their daughter, 18-year-old Janelle Cruz, was home visiting with a young male friend. The young male and Janelle heard some noises outside of the home that evening. When the pair did a quick check, nothing caught their attention and they carried on as usual. Not too long after the noise, her friend departed and went home. Janelle was now alone at the home, and this home was marked for sale. Later in the afternoon of May 4th, a realtor stopped by to show the home to a prospective buyer. When the agent knocked on the door, no one answered. Assuming the home was unoccupied, the realtor entered the home. As he went about the home, he discovered Janelle's body covered with a blanket lying on the bed. It was determined that she had been first struck in the back of the head and then repeatedly in the face, viciously. The weapon was thought to be a pipe wrench that had been stolen from the backyard. The point of entry was not certain, however, the back door slider was unlocked. According to Richard Shelby's book, Hunting a Psychopath, several rumors about Janelle circulated with investigators. They had heard she had been molested by various members of the military and her stepfather. None of the rumors were substantiated. The other thing was that her friend, Greg, suggested she was expecting someone referred to as Kitten Man to arrive. He was supposed to come over the next day with a litter of kittens to see if she was interested in any of them. Greg described Kitten Man as having an olive complexion, dark hair, blue eyes, and was good-looking. He appeared to be a predator to him, and he warned Janelle not to have him over. Kitten Man was never proven to exist, so nothing came of this. Yeah, so what was interesting is, you know, Janelle had a lot of rumors about her um, being molested and all of these things, but none of them were ever really substantiated from what I saw, and I don't know how true they were, and honestly, I don't know, you know, whatever came of that, if anything. It doesn't appear much. And so, you know, investigators are just trying to pull at strings to try and come up with something. Why was she murdered? What happened? You know, where did this come from? Well, the original Night Stalker had been dormant for five years. So from 1981 to 1986, just gone. Strange. What did you think about that? Um, It's crazy that he would, you know, lay low for five years and then attack again. For sure. Because, you know, every profile you read about these guys is... Once they get started, they don't stop. Usually until they get caught, they get killed or whatever. It's very interesting that you would just, you know, go cold turkey for five years. Yeah. That, to me, was one of the most fascinating things about this case, is that suddenly an attack occurs five years after what was considered to be the last original Night Stalker attack. And so... You know, I think that's part of why all these rumors for Janelle circle and why they start questioning a lot of the things about her is because they have no idea at the time that the guy came back. Like serial killers were, you know, I believe first coined in like the 70s and they started doing the whole like FBI profiles and trying to figure them out and figure out their psyche and this and that. And even to this day, most people don't think serial killers just stop. They think that they either stop by being caught, killed, or some other thing. You know, like some major event happens to them and then they stop. They don't think that they just stop on their own volition. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases too that if even if they feel pressure in a certain location where they're, they're committing these crimes, they just move somewhere else. I mean, we talked about the happy face killer. He, he's killing people all over the place. You know, he's not dead set on one area you know, to commit these crimes. He's scattered out. He's, you know, he's traveling the country doing this. You know, I, you can draw a lot of correlations there to, to that, to them moving around so they don't have to stop, so they don't have to feel that added pressure of possibly being caught, right? But this guy, he 
as far as we know, like you said, just went dormant for five years. And he's he's went dormant a few other times with the other series, you know, in between, but not for five years before we're talking a few months. Yeah, exactly. Talking a few months, not years. And that's what's interesting. You know, he just kind of laid low for five years and chilled. And then all of a sudden he's back and murders Janelle. And then he's gone. So that moves us into the next section here, the next 40 years. So over the course of the next 40 years, several key events happened in the investigation into the East Area Rapist and original Night Stalker cases. Sometime in 1991, victim number seven of the year received a phone call. You know who this is, the caller said. The line sat silent for a moment and the caller hung up. Nothing ever came of the call. During the 1990s, an investigator for Contra Costa County, Paul Holes, noticed a box of documents labeled EAR. This intrigued Holes, and so he decided to rifle through the boxes and talk internally to other investigators about what was in those boxes. He discovered the massive series of rapes that had gone unsolved. Investigators were also working over the years on linking the Galita murder cases to the, of the ONS series to the murders in Ventura and Orange County, mostly by M.O. Paul Holes took it upon himself to start leveraging what he could of new technology. DNA to build a profile of the ear. In 2001, the DNA profile that was built officially linked ear, linked the ear and ons cases together, dubbing the rapist and killer ear ons. The problem, though, was that no one could match him to any criminal databases, and therefore this person's identity was still unknown. In 2016, Sacramento County made headlines when they decided to give more publicity to the 40-year-old case for ear ons. Wife of famous actor Patton Oswalt, Michelle McNamara wrote a book about the case and renamed Eron's to Golden State Killer, hoping to attract more attention to the case. She had died of a heart attack before completing her book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. The book was eventually released, and not long after, the Golden State Killer would be arrested. On April 24, 2018, authorities arrested 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo. I'm going to play some of the audio from the press conference immediately after the arrest of 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo, and then we'll dissect this, break it down, and finish off the case with some of our final thoughts and theories about some of the things that we had discussed over the course of this 11-episode series. Take a listen. Contra Costa County District Attorney Dinah Becton, Alameda County District Attorney Nancy O'Malley, Sacramento FBI Special Agent in Charge Sean Regan, United States Attorney for the Northern District McGregor Scott, Assemblyman Jim Cooper, Bruce Harrington, the brother of Keith Harrington, Irvine Police Department Chief Mike Hamill, and our Crime Lab Director Chip Pollock. Let me first by saying this. The answer has always been in Sacramento. For over 40 years, countless victims have waited for justice. Over these years, hundreds of individuals have sought justice for these victims and their families. Many have dedicated their virtual entire professions to seeking this answer. For many of us, it was more than a professional commitment. It became personal for many of us. For me, here in Sacramento County, in June of 1976, I was 12. 
I grew up in the east area of Sacramento, near the cluster of where these crimes began. My sisters ranged from 10 to 16 at the time. As I have said many times over the last 18 years, at least for me, for us here in Sacramento, it was a time of innocence in 1976. No one locked their doors. Kids rode their bikes to school. Parents let their children play outside. The only thing we were told as a family was you just needed to be home before dark. We did not have things like cell phones or social media. And then for all of us here in this community that lived in this community during this time, it all changed. For anyone that lived here in this community, here in Sacramento, the memories are very vivid. You can ask anyone that grew up here. Everyone has a story. But it must be remembered that it was not just Sacramento, that this, this case deeply affected this entire state. And then in June of 2016, at the 40th anniversary for the beginning of this series, the East Area Rapists, a press conference was held here in Sacramento, hosted by the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department and the FBI, attended by many agencies across California that have dedicated their careers and professions to coming to some kind of answer. The message was clear in 2016. The magnitude of this case demanded that it be solved. There were upwards of 50 rapes, 12 murders, crimes that spanned 10 years across at least 10 different counties, northern, central, and southern California. And it was that day in June of 2016 that we, in public safety, reiterated our commitment to the victims and to justice. In this case, the East Area Rapist, the Golden State Killer. And it was that day that we embarked upon what I call our journey for justice. A journey by people across borders, across all professions, police officers, FBI agents, crime lab employees, victim advocates, prosecutors, community leaders, elected officials, all with one mission, to find the answer, to give victims a voice, and ultimately to identify this person and bring him to justice. We brought together, we brought teams together not long after that press conference, we dedicated more resources, more people, and we created what I have called Team Justice, an incredible collaboration of individuals with one mission. There are things about that journey and that commitment that each of us knew. The answer was and always was going to be in the DNA. We knew we could and should solve it using the most innovative DNA technology available at this time. We all knew that it would take passion. We all knew that it would take persistence. Last Wednesday, 
at 8.15 in the evening, I received an email from the daughter of Sherry Domingo, who was murdered in Southern California. Her name is Debbie. She was 15 at the time. Last Wednesday, she emailed, in essence, I'm going to paraphrase, Hi, Anne-Marie. I thought the editing for the recent documentary was brilliant. She quoted from the show, quote, this case will be solved because of sheer persistence. She went on to say, I have those words posted in a few places in my home and my workplace, so I can see them at various times throughout the day. Thank you for that persistence. I have faith. We all knew as part of this team that we were looking for a needle in a haystack but we also all knew that the needle was there. In the last six days, and I emphasize the last six days, that passion, that persistence, and the knowledge finally came to an answer in this building behind us here, our crime lab. Crime lab employees, DNA analysts who worked tirelessly in the last few days to provide that answer. Yesterday, an arrest warrant was issued, a complaint was filed charging that individual with two counts of murder with special circumstances for the murder of Brian and Katie Maggiore here in Sacramento in February 1978. It is fitting that today is National DNA Day. We found the needle in the haystack, and it was right here in Sacramento. And with that, I would like to introduce our Sheriff, Scott Jones. Good afternoon. Before I talk a little bit about this case, I'd like to make just a couple preliminary comments. Um, when I became Sheriff in Sacramento in 2010, there were very few outstanding cases that drew the passion and the interest and the dogged determination to solve as the East Area Rapist. The sheriff that I took over from, Sheriff John McGinnis, who's here with us today, told me about the importance of it. And I don't know that I fully appreciated it at that time, but I can tell you that without exception, weekly and sometimes more, I get telephone calls or emails to this day from former employees, former detectives, community members, from all over this country that believe that they know or at least have some information on who the East Area Rapist was. I committed then to do everything that I could to solve it and had a lot of conversations early on with District Attorney Schubert about how we could do it. And those discussions really touched the passion of both of us to solve this case. Both of us committed the best and the brightest, our hand-picked folks, to oversee the resolution of this case and gave virtually unlimited resources and freedom to pursue whatever leads and technology currently existed. So I can tell you that over the last few days, as information started to point towards this individual, we started some surveillance, we were able to get some discarded DNA, and we were able to confirm what we thought we already knew that we had our man. And yesterday afternoon, in a perfectly executed arrest, my detectives arrested James Joseph D'Angelo, 
72 years old, living in Citrus Heights. I can tell you that although it was DNA, ultimately, that led us down the right road, there were a lot of places that road could have led. I don't want to underscore, I can't underscore enough, the absolute human factor, the dogged determination of not only the detectives working on this case, but the passion of the district attorney, myself, the community, and the victims. All too often we forget about talking about the victims. And today, we at least brought the first step towards closure for those victims of these horrendous crimes. So I want to thank not only the district attorney and the crime lab and the DNA that helped us get here, but my own detectives and the detectives from all of these folks represented by the, the leaders standing behind me when we put together this working group two years ago and brought in the FBI, who was more than happy to be part of this team and effort, we had no way of knowing that we'd be standing here talking about the resolution of all of these crimes. So I have to thank them and again underscore the importance of the human factor and the dogged determination and passion of the individuals and human beings that led us down the right road to this individual today. I want to now introduce the District Attorney of Ventura County, Ventura County, Mr. Greg Totten. Good morning. I'm very pleased to announce that this morning in Ventura County, we have filed capital murder charges against Mr. D'Angelo for the March 1980 murders of Lyman and Charlene Smith. Our complaint alleges two counts of first degree murder with three special circumstances, namely multiple murders, murder during the commission of a rape, and mur murder during the commission of a burglary. Now, while this filing is just the beginning of the prosecution of Mr. D'Angelo, it is the culmination of a decades-long, unrelenting investigation that's singularly focused on bringing this rapist and killer to justice. The arrest and charging of D'Angelo, frankly, would not have been possible without the visionary and innovative leadership of my friend, Sacramento District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert. And I want to thank her for doing such a wonderful job in this effort. She had the foresight to put together a statewide task force of, as the sheriff mentioned, some of the best and brightest law enforcement professionals in the country. I also want to thank Sheriff Scott Jones for the tremendous resources they devoted to this investigation and for the brilliantly executed apprehension of D'Angelo. I also want to thank my own Sheriff's Department for their great work in the crime lab and in the investigation, as well as the Ventura Police Department which was the original investigation, investigating agency of the Lyman and Charlene Smith murder. This 1980 murder has long been a source of fear and angst uh, in the neighborhood in which it occurred, in the community, and indeed throughout all of Ventura County. This is a case that much like the rapes that occurred here 
in the Sacramento area literally struck terror in the hearts of Ventura County residents. It also, as we know, was a source of great frustration for law enforcement over a prolonged period of time. In fact, this murder was among the first cases I was ever assigned to work on as a young law clerk in the district attorney's office in 1981. At that time, we had no idea that this killer was connected to so many other crimes. But thankfully, with the advent of DNA in the late 1980s, our understanding of this case, its depth, its complexity, its geographic reach, and the sheer scope of violent crimes changed forever. We recognized at that time we were dealing with a serial killer. And at that time, at a time when law enforcement is unfortunately under so much criticism, I want the public to know that the work on this case reflects the very best, the very highest standards in the noble and dedicated and courageous police profession. The men and women of this task force de devoted incalculable hours, tens of thousands of hours, to this case. Throughout that effort, they never gave up, they never lost their resolve, they never relented, and today's announcement of charges being filed against this man, this killer, this rapist, is a direct result of their effort. And so now a new phase begins. And as we commence the charging and prosecution of D'Angelo, this too will be a team effort involving many jurisdictions working collaboratively and collectively together. Beyond the significant court proceedings that lie ahead and the immense investigation that is still ongo ongoing as we speak, we are committed we are determined, and we will, God willing, hold this man fully accountable for his crimes. So as you heard from the press conference, 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo was arrested and charged with the murders of Brian and Katie Maggiore. So this is, I mean, I remember the day that this broke. I watched this press conference live. It was Amazing news and just what a relief to the the many, many victims and families that were touched by this lunatic during this series. So some things I wanted to touch on about uh, Joseph James D'Angelo. He was an Auburn uh, police officer and he was fired in 1979 for stealing a can of dog repellent and a hammer from a drugstore, which was kind of interesting. Why would a cop steal from a drugstore? Not much was known about that, you know, at the time. But this ties back to something I wanted to touch on from a very, very, very early episode in the series that we did, where you and I were having a discussion about his stench. Why does he smell so bad? My theory was not necessarily body odor, but dog repellent. Knowing that he had stolen this dog repellent because I knew the end of the case, um, knew how he was arrested and everything, I started to theorize, had he been using the dog repellent and it had gotten on him, 
and he had this foul odor. I don't know what dog repellent smells like, to be completely honest with you, so this could be a completely wild, inaccurate theory that means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. But I was theorizing at the time that he was using the dog repellent as a way to keep the dogs from bothering him while he was out prowling and stalking, and that's why he may have had such a foul or strange odor that many of the women reported during the rapes. I mean, that's a very good theory. It could be. And... The dog repellent thing, having the the foul smell, I I have used some of this before because when we first got our dog, she was just a small pup and we had this new tree that we had just planted in the backyard. So I got this all natural dog repellent and basically what it smells like is um, a very strong hot peppery smell, like a cayenne pepper or something like that. Just a very, very, it's an immense odor. So he could have got the very smallest amount of that on his clothing or skin or whatever if he was trying to spray it around the dog to keep him away. And yeah, it would have smelled pretty rancid. And the stuff is designed to, to keep them away just simply by the smell. You know, if it's, it's a natural pepper-type sauce, so if the dog was to lick it, it doesn't hurt them. You know, it might burn their tongue a little bit, but it, it smells horrible. <laughs> Yeah, and you got to also remember this was 40 years ago, so who knows what the formulation was back then. You know, it could have been some kind of strange chemical concoction that they've turned into a hot pepper concoction, you know, because, you know, who knows? Or it could have been the other way around where it was a lot more natural than it even is today. Who knows? But regardless, it probably smelled to the high heavens. I think that's why he stunk sometimes and they had this strange odor that they couldn't quite pinpoint what it was. You know, many times we heard them say, you know, he smelled, but it wasn't body. They never really quite said it was B.O. smell, but it smelled off. Something was wrong. I think that might be why. The other thing I wanted to touch on was D'Angelo was also, he was a former officer in the Navy. And so I think that might play into some of the ways that he was tying these knots when he was binding his victims. because. I believe that some of the knots that he was tying were related to naval knots, stuff you would use if you were somebody who was on a ship or a boat or whatever, and you were out to sea a lot, or a fisherman maybe. So I thought that was, you know, an interesting connection. And also, you know, police theorized for a long time that he was somebody who was in the military. And sure enough, he was military and police. So that was pretty interesting. He also, when he was caught, and they don't really talk about it in the press conference, and I think they were kind of being guarded because of the way they did it. It was extremely unique, and now it's sort of commonplace, and you want to have the the ethical discussion on the way that he was captured. It, it was the use of genetic genealogy. So what that is, essentially, is that the investigators are able to take DNA, and they make a profile. They take this profile of your DNA, and they upload it to an open source database. So for those of you who aren't super technical or technically inclined, this is not 23andMe. This is not Ancestry DNA. This is something else. Ancestry and 23andMe are completely different companies. They are not related to this, this open source database in any way. They do not give your DNA to the authorities or anything like that. This this database is called GEDmatch, and GEDmatch allows you to take results from 23andMe or from Ancestry. You can download your own DNA profiles, and then you can upload them to the open source database if you'd like. 
That's all voluntary. So what law enforcement does, though, and this is where the ethics are kind of iffy for some, they take the profile they generated of the offender and upload it to that database. And then they look for relatives. And so the software can match DNA relatives. And so this is how they started tracking D'Angelo down. And they got into a family tree and they got between a couple people and they couldn't decide. And then they start going down the rabbit hole and they finally decide it might be D'Angelo. He fits the bill. He's lived in Sacramento. Um, he still he lives in Citrus Heights currently. He's of the age range that makes sense. Those kinds of things. So then investigators start watching him and they get a piece of trash that he discarded. I, I forget exactly what it was. I think it might have been a cup or something like that that he had been drinking out of or chewing gum. One of the two. Something like that. He discards it, throws it in the trash at Hobby Lobby. And they go and pick it out of the trash, take it back and test the DNA and match it against the profile that they have of him. Bingo. Got the guy. So then they stake out his house and, you know, they come up on him when he's outside, I believe, because they felt that he was potentially armed and dangerous, um, that he had a plan, that he always thought about his potential capture and that he was a fight or flight kind of guy. And who knows, you know, some stuff might have went down had they approached his house and they knew, you know, he knew what was going on. So in this case, they, I, th I believe they ask him for directions or something and then they take him down. And as he's being taken down, <laughs> people were saying that he was quoted as saying that he has a roast in the oven <laughs> and he wanted to go back in and get his roast. I don't know that that was ever officially confirmed, but I just thought that was always kind of funny to me that it sounds like something he would say, like some weird thing, like he always seemed to me like really squirmy, like he was trying to get himself out of a jam, but, you know, that wasn't going to happen, obviously. Right. What do you think about the ethical side of that, using that genetic genealogy match to, to pinpoint this guy? I mean, obviously he discarded trash and, you know, it's, the cops can go dig through the trash if they want, you know, they don't have to have a warrant to dig through the trash can, but the method of how they narrowed it down to him, I mean... I'm going to say for me, I, I don't feel that there's a lot of unethical things going on there. I mean, it's an open source database. It's voluntary. Well, I guess what's kind of unethical, if you will, is that like, okay, so the police upload your DNA without your consent, like you didn't load it yourself. And then like, say like your third cousin uploads their DNA and bingo, you have a match. Like you had no control over any of that stuff going out there. And I guess that's where the ethics lie, you know, like I didn't choose to load my DNA in there and then I'm getting matched by somebody else who just did it for their own personal reasons. And I had literally zero say in my DNA going out against that thing at all. But continue on. You were making your point. Yeah. No, no, it's fine. It, I, I, I can see both sides of the argument. You know, it is people are on the fence of and I think that there's uh, people lobbying right now to make make this public record stuff like 23andMe and all of these family ancestry sites just so they can, you know, solve a lot of these cold cases that have went unsolved for decades. In this case, you know, it was what, you know, going on 40 years, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am, I can't think of a reason why I'm against this. I don't know. I really don't. I, I just don't know why I would be against it. I mean, obviously I think there should be some rules regulations around what you can do with this data you know 
I had a hard time coming up with good reasons why it matters if somebody had my DNA other than planting it or incorrectly using it in a way that was like an abuse, you know, somehow. So someone smarter than me needs to think of why those things are bad and how they can be used against people and work on legislation to counter that. But just in general, from a theoretical standpoint of how this is in use, um, not going into the nuances of those kinds of things, I'm 100% for this. I think I'm, I'm not going to say I'm 100% for it, but I mean, the easy argument that you can make is if you didn't do anything wrong, what do you got to worry about? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like you said, you know, there comes into those situations where somebody was crafty enough to, to plant your evidence somewhere. You know, I don't know how they get your DNA evidence, but I mean, just like this guy, he threw away a, a cup in a trash can. Who's to say somebody that's wanting to frame you for something, you know, follows you out of a fast food restaurant, grabs a cup that you just dropped in there, has your saliva on the straw and could take that and implicate you at a crime scene to cover their tracks. It seems like a lot of work, but it, it's still feasible, right? Yeah. I'm thinking more not so much from planting, but more like somehow, some way, some other person came into contact and was in the home and or wherever, you know, the crime occurred and there's just extra DNA there, just say, and it's someone else's and they go down this rabbit hole and pinpoint you as the criminal, but you had nothing to do with it. <laughs> like, Do you know what I mean? Like they implicate you based on DNA that was there just by chance, you know, like. I don't know, you know, somehow like say you had a some clothes you bought from a thrift store or something and your DNA is on those clothes and they never were washed. And then somehow they pull your DNA from a hair strand that was in the clothing that was yours and this crime occurred and then they come back and get you for it, you know, because they can match you. You know what I mean? Like something like that, like those kinds of things, they do exist. And there's definitely something, like I said, that needs to happen to be able to make this a little bit smoother. but. I'm pretty much for this I, 99, 100%. I mean, I also come from it from a standpoint of I have nothing to worry about or hide in this regard. So I'm not, I guess, maybe thoroughly thinking it through in that regard, admittedly. So I don't know. I'm I'm for it. I'm good with it. Yeah, I think I am too. I, I think that there's so many so many cases out there that could be solved in this manner. And, and we keep hearing about them. They, you know, they're sporadically popping up now, ever since this case was broken. And that was the, the, the method of how they caught this guy. I, I've read, I, I don't know the cases off the top of my head, but you know, there's been several other since that have used the exact same technology or the exact same manner to, to locate these people that were offenders that had never been caught. Yeah. The other things that we should touch on about D'Angelo, which was really interesting, was that he was, um, well, just a little backstory. I mean, he was born in New York, but he graduated from Folsom High School in California. And the other interesting thing is he was he was engaged at one point. And do you want to take a wild guess at the name of the woman that he was engaged to? Well, I already know that name. Hey, I watched that unmasking a killer series so <laughs> we we brought it we we hinted to it you know a few episodes ago but yeah it was bonnie yeah bonnie so the the name of the woman that was repeated in some of the east area rapist attacks was reportedly bonnie and uh you know this that's that's really really fascinating 
you know, they ended up not getting married. Um, the engagement was called off and the relationship broke off. So I thought that was really strange. Not strange in a bizarre way, but just strange that he would say those things or whatever. It was clearly on his mind. But what's even stranger is he was married during this string of attacks. He married Sharon Huddle, who was an attorney, in 1973. And he was the Visalia ransacker at that time, then East Area Rapist, then original Night Stalker. So he was very busy. And I question what was his wife thinking like when he's gone all night long prowling. He's got a full-time job, a wife, and this full-time job of being a criminal. I mean, I just want to know what, you know, like what what was going on? How would uh like how would you feel like if you were his wife at the, like where where what? I mean, he was gone all the time. He was busy. I mean, you got to remember he ransacked over 100 homes. He raped upwards of 50 women. He murdered 12 people. Where was he? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting piece. I didn't read into his personal life any. So he was married to this huddle the whole time through all of these attacks. Yeah, I can't even fathom how he would cover his tracks from a from a relationship standpoint. Like, you work your 9 to 5, you know, police job, you know, detective job, whatever he's doing at that time, and then disappear at night to do all this stuff. I just don't, I don't get that whatsoever. Unless he was using the ruse of, hey, I'm you know, working these cases and, you know, I got to work a double shift tonight. But eventually you would say, hey, you're working a hell of a lot of time, but hey, your paycheck never gets any larger. That's kind of weird. Exactly. Uh, It's strange. D'Angelo has three children with Huddle and his first daughter was born in September 1981. So that was kind of interesting because um, he strikes in July 81 and then disappears for years and comes back in 1986. He has a second daughter born in November of 1986. He attacked in May and then he was done. I think those two events coincide with his stopping. I think that he stopped the attacks around the time of the birth of his first child. Then something was either stressing him out or whatever. Felt that urge. Probably always felt the urges. Just stopped. For life was too busy at that point for him. Potentially, he just cared about his kid a lot, you know. Um, just because these guys are extremely crazy murderers doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they are incapable of loving their own family. So, yeah, I don't think it's an incapable thing for a murderer to have a family and love his family, but still go out and torture or murder or do things like that. I think there's many instances where you have serial killers who have families who, you know, they go back to and enjoy. And lastly, he had a third daughter and she was born in 1989 in May. And 
one of them is a doctor and another one has a PhD. And I mean, they're very successful. And obviously his wife was an attorney and, you know, it was just pretty, pretty normal, you know, from a family perspective. He was separated from his uh, wife in 1991, but they never divorced, which is pretty interesting because you have to wonder how much she knows and she's not forced to testify as his wife, you know, or estranged wife or whatever, because they're not officially divorced. She doesn't have to, to testify against her spouse. You're not, you know, you're not forced to legally. However, very, very recently she filed for divorce. So now the prosecution has the ability to call her as a witness. Now there's certain things I think that she's not still technically allowed to divulge under law, but you know, they're able to get more information out of her, like more about like his habits, routines, where was he when this happened, this and that, and try and like kind of paint the picture without asking for like direct conversation, you know, like, so I I thought that was really fascinating news. And then you had uh, brought about a point about um, the current state of California. You want to touch on that? Yeah, I wanted before we wrap up and and put a close to this series. Just here recently, or was it over the last week, the, the governor of California announced that he was halting the death sentence in California. And I wanted to get your opinion on that because we've, we've talked about some pretty heinous crimes and some guys that just outright admit that what they did or confessed, like, for instance, going back to the Lawrence Bittaker case, this guy has no reservation about what he did signs his name to letters that people write him, Pliers, Bittaker, stuff like that. And this guy, 100%, without a doubt, is the Golden State Killer. And the things that he's done across all of these years. And I guess where I'm going with this is, should there still be instances where the death penalty is justified when it's 100% clear-cut, without a doubt, the person who who committed the crimes? Yeah, I um I have a problem with this for many reasons and part of it is now you have nothing to hang over him, you know, to get him to talk and he's a coward and I just don't think he's going to. So selfishly, that's one reason. I do think that maybe we should rethink our death penalty law in this country to include cases where you are 100% linked by DNA and, you know, maybe there's some other criteria and factors involved that, you know, if you check these four or five boxes, then we can qualify for this. And if, if you only check two or three, then you'll just get a life sentence. Like, because we just, we can't 100% say, you know, that you did it. You know, this guy deserves the death penalty more than anybody that I know. I mean, equally as much as Bittaker and Norris and those guys from, from the toolbox case. I, yeah, I was really sad to see this happen because I feel like for the Golden State Killer case, he deserves to be sentenced to the fullest extent possible, which includes the death penalty. And I feel like the families involved just took a little bit of a loss there because they're probably all hoping that he was going to at least get it. Now, he's old enough that he may not meet the death penalty in prison. He may die before then, but I still would like to see it as on the table for him just because I'd like to see him at least plead down to a life sentence, knowing he's going to rot in prison and die and then be done with it. But 
maybe possibly use it as leverage to get him to talk. Right. Yeah, there's no leverage now. Now that that's off the table, he, he has no... He's going to be influenced not not whatsoever to to talk about what he did. You know, he's going to let the trial play out. It's probably going to play out for a long, long time. Just the, just the amount of evidence and the case that the defense can build, it, it's insane. And I'm I'm honestly looking forward to that that whole series when they when they get to the the trial part and I'm hoping at some point in time we hear from his family you know whether it's I'm sure there's going to be books written there's going to be all kinds of stuff come out you know as this thing matures so but yeah getting rid of the death sentence is nothing to hang over his head and he's such a high profile offender now that when he does when he is sentenced. And, you know, go out on a limb here and say, even though it's going to take months, maybe years, he's going to be sentenced to life in prison. I don't think there's any way around that. Yeah. To me, the most interesting thing that's going to come is the evidence that the prosecution has. And when they start talking in trial about all the stuff that they have on him, I'm really fascinated to know what they have that they haven't released to the public because for a long time, they weren't releasing a lot of things. And they slowly over time, because of the length of, you know, the time he was active and, and out there, 40 years. You know, they released a lot more information than probably they usually would like to. And, you know, it was just, it was interesting. You know, one other thing, a few other things, a few final thoughts. Uh, one thing is it was reported that when he was arrested, he was trying to ram his head against the wall <laughs> to hurt himself and probably try and kill himself or something. Um, he was under suicide watch reportedly. I mean, these are all kind of rumors and hearsay. So just to show you what kind of a man he is, you know, reportedly, allegedly. Paul Holes has gone on. He was he was the the main investigator who started the whole DNA thing with with the East Area Rapist case, and he has written a book. Um, there was an audio book. Evil has a name. It was really good. I listened to it. Paul Holes put in a lot of work among many others investigators. You know, Larry Crompton, Richard Shelby, Carol Daly. There's so many notable ones. Larry Poole. I think it was Larry Poole. Sorry if I misspeak the first name. But anyway, there was, there was a long list of investigators over the years who've kept this case alive, sharing information, details, interviews, this and that. The victims and their families. You know, you have Debbie Domingo speaking out. You have uh, Janelle's sister. She's out there and she's speaking out. Um, there have been many podcasts done on this, including ours, but other ones that were just, you know, amazing. You know, the Jane Carson Sandler, victim number five, I believe. Uh, she's been out there advocating. You know, we had the young victim, Margaret Wardlow. I think she was 13 during the attack, speaking out. I mean, these are just, you know, a long list of people who've been affected by this case. And, you know, I just want to say thank you to everybody who, you know, shared their story because, I mean, from our perspective, it is a pseudo form of entertainment in a way, you know, like you read these things and you can't believe these stories. They're crazy. The humans are drawn um, by stories. And this story to me is so amazing in a way. It's so amazing in a bad way. Do you know what I mean? And that's what drew me to this case and drew me to the story and the families involved and just like putting yourself in their shoes and just listening to these things. It sounds so incredibly made up that it couldn't ever happen. And it did. And these people had to live through it. And I think that gets overlooked a lot. And the families and 
friends and, you know, communities that were affected by this maniac at the time, you know, they, they lived through some stuff and, you know, I, I feel so happy for them that he was caught. And the day that he was caught, I was just so excited and I was just thrilled that they caught this guy because I had recently learned of this thing. You know, this has been going on for 40 years. I knew of it for maybe a year and a half before he got caught. And, you know, it was always on my mind. I'd periodically read things about it. And just the fact that they were finally able to bring him to justice is just incredible. And just, you know, congratulations to those who were affected and who have been looking for this kind of justice for so long. And I just, I do want to say in, in the way that, you know, this all unfolded, it was an incredible end to an incredibly crazy story. And just want to I think finalize this case by saying, to quote the name of Paul Hull's book, um, evil does have a name, and it's Joseph James D'Angelo.